You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love, where talking about sex goes beyond the taboos and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. I'm Dr. Joe Court. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Smart Sex, Smart Love with me, Dr. Joe Court. We're talking about sex goes beyond the taboo, and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. This week, I'm chatting with Dr. Anna Randall about what you need to know in order to have a successful kinky relationship. This topic is particularly appropriate this month in October because it's National Kink Month. Anna wears many hats in her office in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's a sex therapist, published researcher, and the executive director of TASHRA, T-A-S-H-R-A, an international nonprofit whose mission is to increase the scientific knowledge on people who have sexual interests, urges, and relationships that are out of the mainstream, including kink, fetish, and BDSM. Anna thinks we are far more sexually explorative than we'd often like to admit, and that you are not alone or weird if you want to have a kinky relationship. So why is it so hard for some people to share their kinky desires with their partner? Welcome, Anna. Hey there, Joe. How are you? Good. I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, it's exciting to me because you're you're you know not only do you specialize with these uh, with kink and fetish, but you're you're a researcher, and so many mm-hmm. therapists don't do research too. You're like um, a minority, don't you think? Yeah, it's like one of those things that's it's kind of my pet peeve that um so many therapists once they get out of out of school, they stop reading research. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. And um so I'm on this mission to get out there and say to to therapists and to counselors and to get out there and read what's currently coming out. So the research that I do is really to get out there and 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 increase their current awareness of, of what's going on. Because especially in this field around kink and BDSM, a lot of the um, a lot of the mythology is 100 and 100 and 150 years old, right. based on um, some of the stuff that was done back in the you know, Victorian times when Freud and um, Sacre, Sacre Massoc and um, and uh, Ellis and all of those folks were first conceptualizing the, the theories of, of um, psychiatry, mm-hmm. which really saw um, people who were doing these sorts of things as truly, truly, truly sick. And um, that just hasn't borne out over the years and the research we've done. Yeah, that, that's really great. And that's why I like to do these shows and have people like you on this so that we can depathologize this and help people not feel ashamed of what's natural for them. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you when you figure out that somewhere between 25 and 60 percent of people have have fantasies that involve BDSM or fetish or kink, that's like a huge number of people. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so in that, you know, when you ask people things like, um, you know, have you ever put, you know, put a blindfold on somebody? Have you ever held their hands above their heads while you were having sex? You, you know, the, the numbers of those are enormous. You know, restraining somebody during, during sex, kissing somebody really hard. You know, when you, when you ask women, you know, how many, it's not just women, but when you ask people, 
um, you know, do you read those kind of ripus, those, those bodice ripper novels where, you know, it's the, you know, it's the person who throws you up against the wall and kisses you intensely, you know, and <laughs> pulls your clothes off, right? It's the most common romance novel. And those, those are, those are BDSM fantasies. So if that's the sort of stuff that people are reading in their fantasies, and they're doing some of that consensually with their partners, then why are we, why do we think that people who are doing this, who are a little bit more overt or more scripted about this are any stranger than the people who are reading those, those fantasy novels? Yeah, yeah, I agree. And we started this with saying, you know, the question started with why is it hard for some people to share their kinky desire desires with their partner? You know, um, for me, I came out as kinky several years ago, but I've known I'm kinky, you know, ever since I started my masturbatory fantasies. And I never could talk about it. I could talk about it with a therapist back then when I was a teenager, but then Mm -hmm. I really never shared it with many partners. And I remember that I was with my current husband of 27 years. It was the first few years together. And the therapist I was seeing at the time said, why don't you tell him? You seem so ashamed of this. You don't need to be ashamed. Mm -hmm. Just tell him. I had the hardest damn time. Why is that for people? Well, you know, it's, it's not uncommon. And, you know, you're a specialist in the area of, of gay men, you know, and, and when you think about the idea that we, we come to hate, um, part of ourselves, right? You know, mm-hmm. we internalize it. You know, they talk about internalized um, homophobia. We talk about internalized kink phobia, right? Mm. I mean, like you, I I was kinky since the time I was four years old. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to, as a kid, watch old, you know, I'm an old person these days, but <laughs> I used to watch old Flash Gordon, you know, movies down in the basement when I was five and six years old. Some of these old Flash Gordon movies from the 1930s and 1940s that would show up on, on television early in the morning on WGN in Chicago mm-hmm. and I would and I would watch them and I would just be mesmerized right and I was this good catholic girl who thought there was something I thought I was possessed by the devil right and so for me I just became this person who thought I should hide it because it was evil like I thought you know like the devil was inside me right and so I think that what's so hard for people is that they see there's a part of themselves inside themselves that they they don't accept or understand. They hear messages outside in the world that says these are wrong or that there are moralistic perspectives, that they can't jive with the values that they hold about themselves, right? So there is the, the moral outside perspectives that are being driven you know, into them. Yep. There's the internal values they hold that feel like their values feel fine, right? But the moralistic external world says those are wrong and then they can't jive those things together and so they begin to kind of hate who they are and so what they do is that shame that they feel they end up feeling like they can't share it with somebody else because somebody else will will judge them even more harshly than they judge themselves yes and so what ends up happening is they feel like they can't share it because they feel they'll be judged or they'll be rejected or they'll be told that they have to change Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so what they end up doing is they'd rather bury it. Right. Then um, then share it and be rejected again by somebody who they who they feel and hope will love them no matter what. Yeah. And often what they do is they will hold it in and hold it in and hold it in until at some point they can't anymore, which is why, you know, there's a big you know, discussion that goes on in the world of the, of the kink research world around, you know, is kink an orientation? I is kink this. an identity? Yes, please speak is to kink, that. 
Yes. Right. I mean, we're whole, you know, right now we're holding about four or five different ideas is, is kink an identity, right? Is kink an orientation? Is kink a, um, is kink a serious leisure? This is a whole new field of study called serious leisure, which is the idea of like, you know, how um, people who identify with something that is a really important part of their lives, like being a rock, you know, rock climber or being um, a, even a bird, you know, bird person who, what a nature bird person, where this consumes a lot of their lives, right? That where they can't kind of separate it a lot from who they are, right? So identity, orientation, serious leisure, um, activity. And so we're, we're right now trying to figure out, I think what we've kind of settled upon is that, um, at least I have, is that for some people, this is an orientation. Yes. For some people, if you ask them, could you take this away from yourself? Um, and there are people who will say no. And I, I am one of those people, Mm -hmm. you know, there was a time in my life, I was married and my husband did not accept this part of me. And it, and honestly, it really, it actually nearly killed me. I mean, I really became incredibly depressed, um, clinically depressed and was very ill because Mm -hmm. I really felt like I, I couldn't cut this part of myself off. Right. Right. For other people, this is an activity and something fun that they do, that they do in the bedroom. That's it's an activity that if they had to give it up, it would, you know, they might be upset about it. They might like to do it more, but it wouldn't be central. It it has to do with centrality. Right. Mm. How central is it to your identity? And then there are other people that this is just, you know, it's, it's a it's a serious leisure for them. Like they really enjoy doing it. They, you know, it's like, you know, they love going to certain clubs. They love uh, a few times a year going to a big event. Um, And it's an activity they do for fun, but at the rest of the year, they put it away. And, and so I think that it runs the gamut for folks. Um, There are people who push for the idea of an orientation, however, because it does um, help with the idea of research and the idea of giving a kind of seriousness to it. Um, In fact, I was just talking yesterday with a physician. We were talking about some research ideas. And what we were saying is that the orientation field does open up um, research money. Um, because as you and I both know, researching sex is a very difficult thing to find money for. Oh yeah, um, It's a big taboo subject. People don't like to um, offer money to research um, insects because of the stigma. Um, it, what's been delightful for us at Tashra in the last two weeks is we have gotten two um, fairly significant um, d- d- donations in the last two weeks Good. from two um, donors. One who um, is a donor uh, is, a, is not an anonymous donor, and um, and one has been an anonymous donor. Mm-hmm. Um, they're nice; they're not huge donations, but they're big donations mm-hmm. for us. Um, and I, but the hard thing is that you know finding people who are willing to do, to research to give money. Um, to sex research is hard. And so for us, the idea of orientation does appeal more because it falls under the rubric of similar to other sexual minorities. And the work that Tasha has been doing for the last eight years is to establish the health disparities that individuals who are BDS, who are involved in BDSM experience much the same or similar to what folks who are other sexual minorities experience, such as, you know, um, based on things like discrimination and stigma, 
you know, are they less likely to see a doctor? Are they less likely to go and get mental health care because of the fear that they have of being stigmatized or badly treated? You know, are they more likely to suffer from depression? Are they more likely to have higher STI rates? Um, That we seem to see maybe a little lower, actually, that folks that are in the BDSM world actually may be less likely to have STI rates that are higher because they communicate more about sex. Mm -hmm. They talk about sex. They they negotiate about sex. But what we may see is that they may... They're not, all the research points to the the fact that they are not more likely to have had trauma in their history and and that they're not more, they're not any less um, well-adjusted. But what we may see is that um, they are um, a a bit more um, concerned about whether they're going to be stigmatized, even though they may experience it less, they're, they're going into those experiences with healthcare providers with more fear. Yeah. Um, even though it may not be realized at the end, you know, I like, I'm glad you talked about how you, you can't, uh, you know, Doug Brown Harvey talks about, you can't give um, somebody an erotic ectomy, right? So, right. Uh, right. Trying to ch- go, someone comes in and they say, take this away from me or the therapist <laughs> says, or the partner says you need to get rid of that. It's like doing reparative therapy, basically what you're yeah. saying. Conversion. Ab- ab- Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I've been, um, you know, Doug Ron Harvey's work has been fundamental to my work over the last 12 years. I, you know, Doug and I have our dear friends and, and colleagues, and he's been a mentor of mine. And so it's fundamental to me as to how I see this. You cannot, you know, you can't pull the kink out of a person. Right. You know, it, it, you know, this is when I talk about fetish work, especially, you know, fe- you know, the, the concept of fetish is, is so, when you look at the history of how the DSM has seen fetishism over the years, and in, in just this past weekend in a training that we were doing, we were kind of go overviewing the DSM's um, kind of pathetic way it's looked at the term paraphilia, and how, how much it just needs to be gone out of the DSM. And, um, and the idea that, that, fetishes are this thing that it's the only thing people can get off on Mm -hmm. is so wrong. It's not true. I mean, but what is, what can happen is that people can get very narrow sexual scripts. So if, if what happens is that somebody is, let's say very turned on by um, bare feet, let's say for instance, and the only thing that they watch in their porn or that they fantasize is about, you know, having their feet licked. Okay. But that's the only thing that they fantasize about and they don't like to watch anything else. Right. They get habituated to like, you know, to bare feet. And so it becomes a very narrow script. Right. So the idea is we can't take away the fact that the person turned on by, by, you know, by feet. But what we can do is expand more things. We can add in more things to the pot so that the menu becomes larger. And so that when the menu is larger, there's more things to select from. And there's then more things to play with, right? Because that narrow script just limits people, Mm -hmm. right? So I don't want to take away somebody's foot fetish. I just want to give you more things to play with than just feet. This is so helpful and so important for people to hear because, um, you know, you're saying it so articulately too that, yes, things can get narrow um, and you don't necessarily want to nece- remove it or can or because can, there is no research about anyone who's been able to remove a fetish or a kink, is there? No, 
And, but, and if and if any, well, yeah, yeah, there's been research. It's chemical castration, and what right. the hell are we doing doing that for? Yeah, and I, I want mean, to remind destroys people. Right. I want to remind people we're talking about consensual sex here, right? Because somebody might be thinking, right. well, what about, you know, minor attracted people, pedophilia? Oh, right. Yes, we're not talking absolutely. about that. No. And, and I think that is the, in fact, just yesterday, um, my partner and I were talking about it. it. The one sticking point in the paraphilias is going to be pedophilia. There's no question about it. Right. Um, you know, because even... And what, you know, the ICD, which is the international, oh God, what classic classification does, what, Disor- whatever, is it, dis- <laughs> disorders or whatever, which is the international DSM, um, which is the diagnostical statistical, <laughs> anyway, my words aren't coming out of my mouth right now. Manual. <laughs> thank you. Thank yep. you. Thank you. Um, the ICD is trying to see if what they might want to do is just pull out the non-consensual acts, the, the criminal acts, what, yeah. what, you know, the, the expression that I use often, and, and I think it's a really powerful one is that when you remove, con- when removing consent, right. Without mutual consent is not kink. It's, it's not a fetish. It's a criminal act. Yeah. Thank you. Right. Yes. So it's really simple. It's, it's like, let's get out of this whole conversation about um, anything other than, you know, is this, you know, is this right or wrong or whatever? It's like, no, if you're doing something that's non-consensual, it's not a fetish. It's not a, a paraphilia. It's a crime. Mm-hmm. It's like, like, forget talking about uh, these other things. It's right. like, you know, it, and so if you want to keep pedophilia, you know, if keeping pedophilia, then keep it in forensics and keep it in criminal acts. Such a good point. And, right. And just keep it there. If, if, if it has a function in criminal, in the criminal and, and forensic world, absolutely. If that's what you need in order to keep people behind bars where they need to be kept away from the, from the public because they're dangerous absolutely keep it there, but keep it for that population. Don't keep it there for people who are into shoes. So what do you, you think know, of this? Like, what do you we, think about... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. It's like we don't have a um, a mur- um, an old person murderer de- um, uh, DSM <laughs> definition. Diagnosis, right, right. Right? We, we don't have, a, you know, we don't have a rape... Um, diagnosis, a rape, you know, rapist diagnosis. That's a good point. Yeah. Right? right. So why do we have a pedophilia diagnosis? Right. We have a pedophilia diagnosis. I get it. It's a heinous, horrible crime. Right. But, but we have laws about non-consensual violent acts and yes, it's a non-violent, it's a horrible violent act against children. I totally agree. And it needs to have some sort of way of being parsed out but stop putting it into it being a sexual act it's not a sexual act it's a violent act so what do you think of this i agree with you what do you think of people who say and partners think this and therapists think this of people who are kinky if you allow this and you um get get into this then you're going to eventually want more and more and you're eventually going to escalate to children i mean there are therapists and partners who think this 
I know. And this is based in all of this old, old, old stuff out of the um, late 1800s that it, that we have not borne out. It, it's so fascinating. When I read this, just in this past weekend, I was doing some reading based on some of the really classic readings from the 18, late 1800s. Um, it, it's this belief in the, in the slippery slope right? The idea that people can't control themselves, that somehow un, unfettered human beings will go down the slope of deviance, right? That we will, we will somehow have the inability to control ourselves. It's the stuff that Doug Brown Harvey talks about too. We control ourselves every single day. Psychopaths, right? And sociopaths may not have that ability, mm. but if somebody is a psychopath or sociopath, they're not, it's not just in sex that they're going to be indicating this. They're going to also be people who are going to be doing antisocial and psychopathic and sociopathic behaviors in other arenas, right? So if somebody has the inability to see that what they're doing is causing harm to others, right? Then what we're going to be doing is seeing that in other arenas and other places in their lives. All of us mostly all of us have the ability to know how much cereal goes in a cereal bowl, whether we should stop at a traffic light, right? Whether or not, if there's a stop sign, we should stop and not roll through a stop sign. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So when I'm dealing with somebody, you know, the idea that somebody will not stop and the next thing they're going to do is harm another person. If they, you know, if they're beating somebody up, if they don't have those mirror neurons that say to them, oh, I'm harming somebody, right? Mm-hmm. I, oh, they're really hurting. I should stop now. That, then, that, yes, that's sociopathic behavior. There's no question about that. But then what we need to do is assess whether or not that person has sociopathic behavior. But if, if the average person does not have that, if the average person has mirror neurons, who, that says to a person, you know, I know that what I'm doing is harming you. I need to stop right now. Very right? well said. And I want people to hear this because, you know, the history of LGBT and people who yes. have, you know, um, sexual minority, kink and fetish or whatever, uh, on, in the media has often been a, a murderer on TV or somebody who's <laughs> marginalized and people don't know it could be anybody. It could be the average person, just like you just said. And, and I think that that is one of the key things that what we say to people is this is the importance of getting involved in community. One of the wonderful, wonderful things that's happened in the last 15 years is with the, with the, um, the kind of the, the world of the, the world becoming so much smaller because of the Internet, because of the way people are coming together, and even more so these days because of COVID, People are reaching out and finding each other. And what we see is that when people who are kinky start finding other people who are kinky, what they discover is that there is a there is a community ethos that exists as this is a community of people around the world. And the community ethos has a strong community ethos that has to do with not harming children, not harming animals, not um, of being consensual, of using negotiation, Mm. of learning and teaching, teaching and um, educating people on how to do things safely, how to do things consensually, how to connect with others, how to learn the ropes, pun intended. (laughs) 
So that what we see is that when people get involved in community, their, their possibilities of mistakes of what we call consent violations or consent mistakes decreases, their likelihood of getting injured decreases. And so what I say to people is the very first thing, what I say to therapists is the very first thing, if you're working in therapists are seeing these people every day in their offices. Yes. The average therapist is going to, you know, when people are just coming into this world of kink, they are going to the, they are more likely to see a, a regular therapist about this. People who are very more advanced in this world are more likely to seek out what we would call kind of a kink knowledgeable or a kink expert therapist. The average person who's just exploring this is more likely to go and see their regular therapist about this. So it behooves regular therapists to get educated about what are the community resources that I can give people. I'm a social worker by original training. So resourcing is a really important part of my training. And so it's about, you know, where are the King community, um, you know, local resources, having people understand that there's a website called FetLife, which is a kind of kinky, it's kind of kinky Facebook. Um, and, it's, it's, um, it, <laughs> it is. and yeah, it is. Uh, I'm sure Facebook doesn't like that very much, but um, it, it, it has a horrible search engine and it's, a, you yeah, know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of an archaic site, but, yeah. but it still is a community for people and to get out there and, and be as a therapist to tell people there's a world out there. You're not alone. Let me ask right? you one little last thing just because yeah. of time. You're so, yeah. you're, I'm telling you, you're such a rarity in this field. You're smart. I mean, not that therapists aren't smart, but you're a researcher <laughs> or you're articulate, you're, you know, uh, you can do therapy. So I'm going to wrap it up with the last question. How should someone um, talk to a partner if they're kinky and to tell them that? Um, I, I think one thing is that they, they need to think through um, why is it they want to tell their partner? Is it, is it guilt? Like, is it, you know, is this like, are they telling them to get something off their chest? Right. Mm-hmm. Are they telling them because they want to get them involved in it? Right. Mm-hmm. So they have to think through why am I telling them? Secondarily, um, they need to do some reading and education about how to introduce this to their partner in a way that doesn't frighten them. Right. Yes. And that, that doesn't make their partner feel that their partner is not good enough. Right. Because often this will have their partner feel like, well, am I not good enough for you? So I think that that's one thing to do. And then the other thing to do is to introduce it in a way that helps them understand why it's important to the person that's telling them. So the kinky person needs to help them understand why it's important for that other person to know this about them. Right. And why they want to include this into um, or why they want their partner to know as a way of understanding the building intimacy between the two of them. Because this is a deeply, um, it's a wonderful way to build intimacy between people and a couple. Um, I can't tell you how deeply intimate BDSM is for couples. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it, I think it's about really wanting the, co- the partner to understand that this is about wanting you to know me better so that the two of us can have a better and deeper relationship with each other. This is so helpful. Thank you so much. How, Anna, how can people find you on the internet? They, they can find me by looking up Tasha, T-A-S-H-R-A. 
um, or my own personal website is uh, dranarandall.com, which is D-R-A-N-N-A-R-A-N-D-A-L-L.com. Thank you so, so much for being on my show. I'm hoping, I'm, I'm going to want to have you back because you do wear many hats. This was just one of them. <laughs> so, so helpful. Um, it was great to talk to you. Thank me you too. so much for inviting me. Thank you so much. And, and to my listeners, if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And also follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at Dr. Joe Court, D-R-J-O-E-K-O-R-T dot, or no, not dot com, Dr. Joe Court. I'll see you next time and take care, be safe, be consensual, and happy National Kink Month to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Smart Sex, Smart Love. I'm Dr. Joe Court, and you can find me on joecourt.com. That's J-O-E-K-O-R-T.com. See you next time.